This is Pathways. I'm Randy Rutkowitz. My guest today is Dr. Kristen Hollister, who received her PhD degree in microbiology and immunology from the Indiana University School of Medicine, where she studied follicular helper T cells in the transcriptional repressor BCL6, as well as humoral immune responses to HIV. Following graduation, she went to work for Eli Lilly and Company here in Indianapolis as an associate consultant in their global scientific communications group. You and I could call that discipline science writing, something your PhD training has prepared you to do. Thus, Kristen made the jump from PhD to industry without doing a postdoc. Dr. Hollister has expanded what she does at Lilly since arriving, which we'll discuss today as well. How did she get to where she is and where does she want to go? Let's find out. Kristen, welcome to Pathways. Happy to be here. So let's start off something very simple. Okay. What exactly is an associate consultant and what does a typical day look like for you? So uh, I'm an associate consultant in the scientific communications group, as you said. And um, also, as you said, it's you're a medical writer. Um, and so people in my group, we take the clinical trial data from our clinical trials and we'll write the publications that you'll see in the Lancet or New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and so we work with a lot of internal players, scientists, physicians at Lilly, but also we work with um, external people as well. So physicians in the field, uh, et cetera. Mm -hmm. How did you get your job at Lilly? Network, network, network. <laughs> um, as you know, Lilly uh, is based here in Indianapolis, and so there were a lot of job openings. And it has a reputation for being a very good company. Um, so I was very interested in, in pursuing a career at Lilly, um, and so it came to be that a former student from our graduate program here um, at IU was working there, and so I contacted her. We had coffee one day, and I was showing her, you know, the jobs I had applied to but hadn't necessarily had success in getting past that online screening process of, of getting your resume into someone's actual hands. Um, and she said, well, you know, on this one, I actually know the hiring manager. So send me your resume and I'll forward it on to her. And I got a call the next day from HR and said, oh, you know, we accidentally overlooked your resume. We'd like to speak to you. Um, and so really it came down to networking um, because I think this program here at IU has prepared me well. And it's just a matter of making sure that you get your information in the hands of the, the right people. I think that's maybe the, the big barrier. Mm -hmm. How do you get it in the right hand? hands. Right, right. Have you always been in, interested in science? I mean, how did you get bitten by the bug? Um, yeah, I, I think so. When I was a kid, my mom would buy me toys that were science-y toys. Um, and so, you know, I had weights and measurements when I was a kid and uh, a little toy uh, microscope to look at bugs in the yard and things like that. So I think from a very young age, my parents sort of instilled this um, thrill of discovery and questioning things and, and trying to look at the world around you. And so it started from a very young age and then, you know, I went to college and um, not a lot of people in my family have gone to college. And so I looked at it as a really great opportunity for me personally. And I said, well, I want to pursue something that I'm genuinely interested in. And so I wound up in the biology department and the rest is history. <laughs> But okay, so, you, so you graduated from college and then you had some time before you started graduate school. Right? Yes, and yes. So what did you do? Did you do that? 
So I initially started working um, in industry as a lab technician. Uh, my first job, I was actually working as a chemist um, for an animal pharmaceutical company. Um, and so I was, you know, in the lab testing the molarity of, of different um, things that we were mixing up. And then I uh, moved to Indianapolis and I got a job working here, also in industry in a lab, being a lab technician in a biology lab, doing a lot of um, PCR and, and DNA sequencing. So um, I did get exposed to industry early, right after college, and um, I saw all the nice things they have in the lab. You could order what, pretty much whatever you wanted, and you know I came to grad school and saw eh, the, the money's a little bit tighter on the academic side. <laughs> so what compelled you to apply to graduate school or to go to graduate school in the first place? What did you want to do with the PhD? Um, well, when I was working in industry, I looked around at the people around me and above me, and I saw that unless you had a, a PhD, there was a, there was a glass ceiling that you weren't going to be able to break through very easily. Um, and so, really, I thought if I wanted to be, you know, at a higher level, if I want to advance my career long term, having a PhD is really going to be a necessary tool um, to help facilitate that in the future. Okay. So you're you're using your PhD certainly as a science writer. If you're going to write abstracts mm -hmm. or any kind of um, any kind of written material whatsoever, mm -hmm. you're using your scientific training and your training in terms of writing mm -hmm. uh, as a graduate student. What other kind of jobs can somebody have in industry but still requires a PhD? So I think there's a few things, a few skill sets that you pick up as a PhD student that are overlooked because we take them for granted. So for example, project management. When you're working in the lab, you not only have to manage your own projects, but sometimes you're helping other people with their projects in the lab and you have to coordinate with them. Um, sometimes you'll get a new student or an undergrad in the lab for the summer and you have to supervise them and manage them, make sure that's you know going as successfully as it can. Um, and that's a really big asset. Being able to have multiple balls in the air, make sure things get done when they're supposed to get done, and, and coordinate with lots of other people. And I would say that's actually a bigger skill set that I use every day at work than the actual writing. The writing itself is a very small percentage of what I do. It's mostly learning how to work with other people uh, and coordinate with other people. And also communication is really big. Um, and so, as anyone in graduate school knows, there's lots of different personalities, not just in your lab, but maybe on your floor in your department. And if you're going to be successful, you have to understand how to best communicate with, with each of those people. Um, and that's another huge skill set. When you go work for a big company, you're working with a lot of different personality types, and you have to learn quickly how to gauge how does this person best receive information, good or bad, um, what's the best way. Should I send them an email? Should I go find them? Should I call them? Um, and so those are, I think, some soft skills that are underappreciated by students because you don't realize how much of a skill set is that you've honed until you have to go into you know, the real world and use those skills, uh, and then you realize how much practice you've actually had doing those things. I guess in, in some respects, you talk about soft skills, which somebody, some people, I think, call that term pejorative, but it, it nonetheless, I see that as, as actually a, a supportive term mm -hmm. where it's something that you have those subtle nuances when you're speaking with somebody like you said you're trying to pick up how do they receive information
best? Mm -hmm. Is it by email? Is it face to face? Is it by phone call? If, if, as you know, most people in academia, students, postdocs, faculty, if you look at a personality scale, extroverted versus introverted, most people are probably introverted. Mm -hmm. And for introverts, that's probably really hard to try to get a gauge on how people best receive information. Are there any tricks that you could recommend to help people understand maybe how to at least begin to do that? Mm -hmm. So my approach has always been to be, you know, positive and upbeat um, and to sort of ask open-ended questions and, and try and gauge, you know, are they giving me long-winded answers, are they giving me short answers, um, and, and just, you know, work your way into trying to get to know their personality the best you can. Um, that's been very helpful. At companies like Lilly, it can be difficult sometimes because we're a global company and I work on a global team. So a lot of my colleagues are in Germany or in France, um, and so your only option is a phone call <laughs> um, or an email. Um, and so that, that's definitely one of the hurdles. You don't have as much face-to-face -face time. And for me personally, I've always found face-to-face -face time to be the best in terms of getting to know someone and, and um, having them appreciate what you're doing for the team and you can better appreciate what they're doing for the team. You had mentioned that you started off as a science writer, but things that you're doing now is you're exploring other things and mm -hmm. learning more about the company and able to contribute in, in some different ways. Could you mm -hmm. give us a little bit of an idea of what those things are? Sure. So one of the groups we have um, at Lilly is we refer to them as the Global Patient Outcomes Group. And so an example of that would be if you have a clinical trial um, for a drug for, let's say, a, a heart disease problem. If the drug works and fixes whatever the heart problem is, that's great, but let's say this person's quality of life doesn't improve, they're still depressed, they still can't move properly, then you know, the, what's the point of taking the drug, you could ask. Um, and so the Patient Outcomes Group, they measure those other Part quality of life metrics, and we publish those results and show you know this drug is efficacious. It also improves your quality of life. Um, so I was working with that group on a lot of their publications, and um, I found it really interesting. I think those are important questions that we need to ask ourselves when we're taking medication. Uh, and one of the women I was working closely with recommended me to help cover for her while she was on extended maternity leave. So for a good chunk of this year, I've actually been working 50% as a writer and 50% as a um, global patient outcomes scientist on the team. Um, so I've been able to contribute, I've been able to um, work on uh, clinical protocols, um, some FDA documents, and so it's really given me an opportunity to learn other parts of the company and, and understand what you do in different functions, which is one huge benefit of being a scientific writer because you work with the medical team, you work with the statistics team, um, you work with the pay, uh, health outcomes team, you work with a lot of different functions every day, and so you really get an opportunity to explore, well, what do you do, what do you do, and so it helps you build on that and say, well, maybe I want to take this step in the future with my career. I think too often when people think about industry jobs, they think about, oh, I just work in a lab mm -hmm. and that's it. 
Mm-hmm. But when they hear for the first time about medical writer as a possibility, and then you're talking about how things intersect almost like Venn diagrams, so mm-hmm. the circles are, are overlapping, that there are a lot of opportunities. And as you get known in the company, they rely more upon you for different things. And it's that, that person-to-person uh, interactions that you've had where the one uh, colleague said, hey, could you cover for me while I'm on, on leave, which mm-hmm. is, I think, uh, fantastic and and helpful to you. One important aspect to our careers as scientists, whether we're in an academic career path or or non-academic career path, mentors. So tell us a little bit about mentors who have really helped steer you to where you're at today. Yeah, um, I will say my my PI here at IU, Alex Dent, he was fantastic. Um, I think I was in a special situation because his wife has worked in industry for a long time and so he understood, you know, his heart was in academia but he also understood that there's other opportunities out there and you know not everybody is is meant to go into academia and so he was very supportive um, and I know sometimes students may struggle with that with their with their mentors in graduate school but um, I just want to say, you know, know that there are people out there who will support you. I know you support students as well, so I think that's fantastic. Um, and then once I was at Lilly, um, there are so many people at that company, so you know, it takes a while to kind of get to know people. But I have had a few people um, that I meet with quarterly or a couple times a year, and they've been uh, working at Lilly for quite a while, and they can really provide guidance and. Um, the nuances of the landscape that you have to maneuver to you know, move up in, in corporate America, because it's not just about performance, it's about networking. Networking never goes away. I, I can't stress that enough. If you want a job, if you want to move up in a small company or a large company or change companies, it's always about networking. So you know, get out, meet people, go to social events. Um, I know that the IBMG program hosts some sometimes. I know there's other ones around town, um, but yeah, I, I can't stress that enough, the networking aspect. So the, the mentors that you have at Lilly, that's more informal? Or are there formal mentoring networks at Lilly as well? So there's both. Um, I would say I've taken advantage more of the informal at this point, um, but the Lilly itself has a career development program where you have, I mean, you meet with your boss as often as you need, but once a quarter you have a formal meeting and it's sort of a performance review and they ask you about, you know, where do you want to go from here? What are some goals we can have for you? Um, I just had my annual wrap up with my uh, supervisor and that went well, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, but we started to talk about next year, you know, what do you want to build on your success from this year for next year? What are some experiences you want to work on next year? Um, and so I think Lily's very good about um, driving and pushing people to, to be successful. In the two years that you've been at, at Lilly, mm-hmm. it's almost two years now, I think, and have your thoughts changed in terms of maybe what you could ultimately do in terms of ultimate career path? So I think you can always have a dream <laughs> and you can work towards that dream. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's life is a gamble. And I think you need to just take advantage of situations when they are brought to you and still work towards new ones, but you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. 
right? And so um, you might have an opportunity to go down a path you weren't necessarily thinking about, but it might be a great opportunity at that point in time. Um, and so I have had a couple um, deviations where I thought I was going this way and then I went this way. Um, but I think, you know, long term, I'm still, for me personally, I, I want to move up and, and become a scientist at the company. And not necessarily a scientist in the lab, as you were mentioning, but um, a lot of people in industry have the title of scientist. But they're more so working on clinical trials, looking at the data. Um, they're not in a lab with mice, which I do not miss the mice. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, if you didn't do what you're doing now, if you didn't go into industry, mm -hmm. what would your plan be? Um, so I still would really like to teach. Um, I, I've, we had to do some teaching requirements and for the program. Um, I also helped cover a few seminars um, for my PI while he was out sick or traveling. Um, and I really like teaching. I really like tutoring students and being in front of a classroom. I'm a talker. <laughs> um, and so I do still think that's an opportunity down the road. Um, I thought about teaching evening classes at some of the community colleges here in town. Um, so I, I do still have a passion for that, and I think that's something I'll explore in the future. Yeah, and certainly a number of, of folks who are, have positions in industry are adjunct faculty at different places. Yes. And as you know, some of your colleagues at Eli Lilly are adjunct faculty at the IU School of Medicine. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. What advice would you have for a, a PhD student or even a postdoc who's interested in, in a career in science writing? And so more than just networking. Right, so um, I think a big one is to understand the difference between industry and academia. So one thing that really shocked me um, was the interview process. And thankfully, I, I did prepare for it after I figured out what was going on. But um, you know, in academia, we always think about, well, you go for an interview, they ask you some questions, but they're really interested in the science you're doing. And you give a scientific presentation. Industry if they bring you in for an interview at that point, they know that you're qualified for the job. They just want to know, is your personality going to fit within our group? Um, and so the STAR questionnaire interviews, um, Google them, look them up. There's some really good examples online. But it's all about personality, situational questioning. Tell me about a time you had to deal with conflict. Tell me about a time you had to you reported something unethical, things like that. Um, and so that's really sort of a different thought process approach to work than what we have in academics. Um, and so that's a big one. Um, also, you know, there's a lot of really good websites out there. Uh, Glassdoor.com is a good one, has reviews on, on industry jobs and salary and, and things like that. So really do your research and understand what you're getting into. And, and don't sell yourself short. The, the PhD program, it prepares you scientifically. You learn a lot, but it teaches you how to think, which is the most important thing. I mean, you literally have a doctorate in thinking. And um, troubleshooting is, a, is an underappreciated skill that you basically have mastered by the time you finish your PhD. Um, you know, anything from thinking about the bigger questions of your research to how do I get this PCR machine to work today. Um, and so those are, you know, skill sets that people have. I think you just need to sit down and really think about what can I bring to this job 
um, versus other people who are applying. And so I think it's really good to have a, a self-assessment and be very self-aware. I guess my, my last question would be, is there any question or questions you think I should have asked you that would be helpful to people oh. listening in? Hmm. I should, I should have thought about this ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head based on what we've spoken about. Um, I will say that um, you mentioned at the beginning that I made the jump without having a postdoc. And I, w I was talking to someone about this the other day. I would say probably only 30 to 40% of us in the writing group at work um, don't have postdocs. The oh, rest do have postdocs. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think it's necessarily a requirement. I think it's just those individuals went down the academic path and wanted to pursue a postdoc, and then they got to a point where they decided to make a change. So I don't think it's harmful at all to either have one or not have one. Um, but I think more than not, people tend to have postdocs. Yeah, I think and the reason I would want to mention that is just that you don't have to have a postdoc Correct. in order to be a successful medical writer. Correct, yes, yes. I think it's, you know, it's really important to have leadership skills and to be able to communicate well with others. Um, that's a big one because I, every day I am sending hundreds of emails from you know our vice president in our group to internationally renowned dermatologists um, to the statistician that sits two desks down from me. So being able to communicate with people on different levels um, and also understanding the nuances of language barriers, um, that's a big one, uh, and, and understanding the, the creativity of email writing and the nuances that go along with that, which sound very silly, but I think in an in industry you send so many emails every day. That's, that's mostly my writing skills right there, is crafting emails, so. You craft and write because you have perception versus intent. Exactly, exactly, that's a big one. Great, well, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Kristen Hollister, for telling her story of the journey that landed her as a member of Eli Lilly and Company's Global Scientific Communications Group. I'd also like to thank all of you listeners for joining me in this edition of Pathways. Remember that you can find us on iTunes under Pathways. We have the audio from our broadcast and for some of our interviews, we've captured the video as, as well. So join us next time on Pathways as we explore the career paths of biomedical PhD degree holders in their not exciting non-academic positions. I'm Brandy Brutkowitz. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Brutkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.